What a great time of worship. We are continuing in our series on the parables. And uh, we're, we're moving toward the end of Jesus' life today. Just before he was crucified, he spent a great deal of time with his disciples telling them, really explaining to them two things. Uh, he was preparing them for his departure, which would be a really sad, doleful time for them, of course. But he also spent some time talking about his return. He was pointing to, yes, there will be sadness, then there will be the resurrection, and then there's going to be a lot of work to be done. And there are going to be some good times and some bad times, but in the end, I'm coming back. And that's going to be a great time. And in Matthew chapter 24, he gets to the Olivet Discourse where he's explaining some of the signs that they'll be able to recognize some things that are going on that will cause them to anticipate, cause us to anticipate his return. And then at the end, he does what he always did when he was teaching. He told some stories just to be sure they understood. And these stories were, were not stories to, to help them understand what was going to happen with him when he returned, but they were stories that inspired them to be ready. There, there's a way that we are supposed to wait on the return of Christ. And so the, the first story he tells is at the end of chapter 24, and then he tells another one, and we're going to actually look at the third story. But the first one in chapter 24 is about a servant whose master decides that he's going to go out of town for a while. And by the way, the, the one recurring theme through all of these parables is the people waiting on the master's return, they just aren't sure when he's going to be back. So he's going out of town for a while. He puts a, master, uh, a servant in charge of his household. And, and the job is to look after the affairs of the household and to manage the other servants. It was critical. And so Jesus, when he tells this story, he masterfully provides two different endings. Okay, two different scenarios. The first, the master makes the surprise return and they fi he finds the servant doing exactly what he was tasked to do. And so the master says to him, hey, great job. He gives him a commendation and then he gives him a promotion. I'm going to expand your responsibility. But in the second scenario, when the master makes his surprise appearance, he finds the servant not doing what he was tasked to do. He's actually mistreating his subordinates. And so for his abusive mismanagement, he loses everything when he's cast out of the master's household. Now as chapter 25 opens, Jesus tells right behind that one yet another story. And this one is about a group of bridesmaids who are waiting on the bridegroom to arrive. Now, the way it worked in those days that everybody prepared for the feast and for the marriage celebration, but unlike today, it wasn't about the bride, it was about the bridegroom. So they waited for the bridegroom's arrival, and then everybody would be able to enter the feast. Now, in, in the story, Jesus points out that there are ten bridesmaids, and they're all expecting his return, his arrival, at any moment. 
But just in case he's late, five of the ten bridesmaids decide that they're going to go get their lamps and they're going to fill them with oil. So just in case he's delayed, they'll have lights to shine the way into the party. Now the other five bridesmaids said, no chance he'll be late. He'll be here any minute. So they did not prepare. Now, lo and behold, the groom was delayed. And he he was so late in arriving that all the bridesmaids went to sleep. But at midnight, they were awakened, saying, he's here, he's here. So five of them run out with their lights on, and the other five jump up and go, oh my goodness, where are we going to get oil for our lamps? So they run down to the convenience store to try to get them filled up, but the convenience store's closed. I'm, I'm making, like, some of that's just license, right? That I'm taking liberties there. They couldn't find any oil. And so when the bridegroom arrived, he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going with the ones who were prepared. And so they enter into the marriage feast, close the door and lock it, and the five who were were ill-prepared for his return missed the celebration. So those are two parables that Jesus told about waiting for his return. And they actually present the extremes that we can live in as we anticipate Christ's arrival. We can act as if it's never going to happen, like the servant who was abusing the other servants. He thought, well, he's been gone so long, I doubt he's going to come back. Now, maybe he died on the trip, so I'm in charge, and I'm going to take advantage of it. His idea was, there's nothing I need to do now. There's nothing I need to do now because he's obviously not coming back anytime soon. That's one extreme. The other extreme is we can act as if it's happening in a few minutes. We can act as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow morning. And in that case, we might say there's nothing we can do now. It's too late. So in one extreme, there's nothing we need to do because he's so slow in coming. And in another extreme, there's nothing we can do because his arrival is imminent. Now what Jesus makes abundantly clear in those two parables is that waiting in either of those extremes is foolish. It denies the reality that there is something that we should be about as we wait. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there wondering, what what is the wise thing? What's in the middle? He tells one more story. And this third story that we're going to look at today describes what wise waiting looks like. It reveals for us just exactly what we're supposed to be about as we wait on the return of Christ So I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to begin reading. I'm going to read the entire parable. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. And this is a really simple parable. I'm I'm not going to have to spend a lot of time explaining what's going on here because it is straightforward. But it has profound ramifications for us as we hopefully, wisely anticipate 
the return of Christ. So Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the, the man who had received one bag, he went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and he, he settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. You can retire and ride off into the sunset. No more is expected. Oh, I'm sorry. He said, you, you've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. That, that's the reward. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied with the same speech. That he gave to the one with five. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I, I, by the way, I think this is a character assassination. Look what he says. I... I knew you were a hard man. You're harvesting where you have not sown. Gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I, I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. Here's what belongs to you. Now I want you to think about this. He never owned what was entrusted to him. His master replied, you, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, I, I pray today that as we... Cease striving before your word and hear from your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth and your call. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now obviously, Jesus opens the parable with the word again, which links it to the two that preceded it. Okay, the, the scenario is essentially the same. The master is going on a trip and will return at some unspecified time in the future. He's not telling them when he will be back, only that he will be back, which is exactly what Jesus has been telling his disciples. And and this story features bags of gold or talents. Now, by the way, you should know that when we use the word talent, we're talking about all of our gifts and abilities that are given to us because we're created in the image of God. That word talent actually comes, as we use it in the English, emerged in about 1500, but it was it comes out of this story. Okay, in the NIV, we read about bags of gold. In other versions, it talks about talents. It, it was essentially a bag full of 60 to 90 pounds of gold. Okay, and the master assigns different numbers of bags to his servants. Okay, one got five, one got two, and the other one got one. So that's Eight bags of gold. Now, what did those bags of gold or those talents represent? His entire estate. It was the master's fortune. It was everything he had. And he entrusted it to three servants. Now, while it is not stated explicitly... The implication is clear that he didn't just want them to guard it, to guard his estate. He wanted them to grow it. It wasn't about, hey, take this and hold on to it until I return. Just don't lose anything. He, he had a vision for what his estate could become. And he picked three of his servants to entrust that vision to them. They weren't just supposed to guard it. They were supposed to grow it. They were well aware that the sacred trust of his entire fortune meant that they were going to be accountable. It meant that they had some responsibilities. They were obligated to invest his money in profitable ventures that would ensure the growth of his estate. Now, in keeping with the other two parables, the servants are kept in the dark about when the master's going to return. As we've said, he informs them that he's going on a journey, and while they know he's coming back, they know not when. We know he's coming back, We know not when. And so their assignment, which they recognized was a sacred trust, he only picked three servants. Not every servant was chosen. When they thought about the assignment, and they combined it with the indeterminate length of the master's absence, that knowledge produced the same effect for two of the three servants. They processed it and they understood what it meant. 
Did you pick up on what it meant? Look at verses 16 and 17. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. Now I don't want you to focus on the outcome. I want you to focus on what the knowledge of his departure and the knowledge of their responsibility created urgency. They had urgency. The scripture said the man with five bags went at once and put his money to work. And then it says, so also the one with two bags. They understood that there was no time to lose. If they were going to be good stewards of the master's vision, then they had to get to work immediately. Why? Because they weren't sure when he was coming back, but they were sure what he wanted. We don't know when he'll show up. And they proved faithful to the assignment because they made it their top priority. They were focused on the master and the master's vision, and the master's desire. And so they got right to work to fulfill their obligation. And you know what happened? They did it. They were successful. After a long time, a long time, the master returned, and he was there to settle accounts. And they had really good news for him. The first servant doubled his gold, presenting the master with ten bags of gold. And likewise, the second servant presented him with four, having doubled what was initially entrusted to him as well. And so the master was thrilled with what happened, thrilled with their work, and he said the same thing to each of them. You remember what he said in verse 21? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. You understood the trust you were given. You were responsible. You did the work. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come, come and share your master's happiness. You know what they did? They rose to the occasion. They rose to the occasion because they understood the importance of their work and they charged in with urgency. And in rising to the occasion, they fulfilled their master's vision. Not so much with the other guy. The third one, not so much. By the way, it turns out that he was the focus of the parable. Because Jesus wants us to learn how to wait wisely. And this one didn't wait wisely. Remember, when, when the gold was entrusted to him, he had a very different response. The other guys responded with urgency and went to work. This one responded with urgency, but not for the work. He urgently wanted to guard the money, rather than to grow it. 
And so when he got his one bag of gold, he went and immediately dug a hole. He buried the money for safekeeping. You know what that means? He, he kept it hidden to protect himself. He was focused on himself. Rather than investing the money in opportunities around him to make some money and to make the world a better place, he hid it. Why? Because he was focused on himself rather than the master, which makes us fearful rather than faithful. When we are self-absorbed, looking inward, we have fear. We have a fear that we could lose what we've got or that somehow we'll be made to look bad as we work. And so we just protect ourselves. But the faithful ones went right out and it's like, it's not about me anyway, it's about the master. And he wants his estate to grow. And I'm going to do my part. When the master gets back and he has a meeting with this third servant, the third servant, it occurred to him in that moment that he had wasted the opportunity of his lifetime. He, he met with the one with five bags first, had a celebration. He was rewarded with increased opportunity. He met with the one with two bags second. They had a celebration. He was rewarded with increased opportunity. This one comes in, oh my goodness, I didn't lose anything. So, here you go. He failed. But what's really interesting about him is that rather than owning it, as soon as he realized what was going on, he, he went into the spin zone and he was working to blame someone else for his failure. Did you notice who he blamed? The master. Really? Really? He turned on the master. He was the problem. Do you remember what he said? Look at verses 24 and 25. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said... I, like you're hard to live with. I, I knew that you were a hard man. Your business dealings are, you know, questionable. Harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So, I was afraid. Surely you can understand why I was afraid because of you're a tyrant. And what I did was I, did, I just went out and hid your gold in the ground and look, here it is, all of it. I didn't take up, I didn't take one farthing. Here it is, all of it. What happened was the master's fault. He accused him of being a hard, ruthless businessman. You know what he was doing? He was judging the way the master worked. 
Oh, can we just pause for a minute and remember that this is God, this is Jesus, is the master, and we're waiting on his return, and we are assessing how we respond to the opportunity that's given. And sometimes we judge the master. Sometimes, especially in our culture, we hear like, you know what, God is love, so there's, nobody's excluded. All roads lead to heaven. If, if, if God's who he ought to be, then this is the way he'll conduct his business. It won't be that Jesus is the only way. That seems so old-fashioned, so narrow-minded and exclusive. So let's change it. Let's just adjust and let's just tell everybody that God loves them and you're, we're all in. No accountability. No need for grace. Shed blood of Jesus. That's just macabre. We'll just do away with the parts we're uncomfortable with and love wins. Because we would do a better job being God than God does. Just like the servant would be a better, do a better job of being the master than the master does. So, he judges him. He gives him the money back. Believing that he is now absolved of responsibility. Now, not surprisingly, these accusations don't go over well with the master. Does that surprise you? He points out that, first of all, if you believe this about me and you believe that I'm an unscrupulous businessman, then the least you could have done was gone and put the money in the bank where I would get some interest. But you didn't. You were fearful. Too afraid. But that wasn't even the main problem. The main problem was that he was wicked and lazy. How was he wicked? He didn't steal the money. He did return it as he found it. His wickedness came from the fact that he leveled accusations at the master. That he essentially told the master, I would... I would do a better job of being master than you do. I don't like the way you work, and therefore it's wrong. His laziness showed itself in the fact that he refused the work that was assigned to him. For his wickedness and his indolence, the money was taken away from him. And it was given to the one who was faithfully working on behalf of the estate. In other words, if you're not going to fulfill your responsibilities for the kingdom, I'm going to take those responsibilities, the work that still needs to be done, and I'm going to entrust them with someone else. For his wickedness, 
he was dismissed. He was kicked off the ranch. But he was never there anyway. He was just hanging out. Because he hadn't bought in to the master's vision. That's the story that Jesus tells to explain what wise waiting acts like. It doesn't happen in extremes, neither thinking that he's delaying too long and therefore there is nothing we need to do now, nor does it happen in the extreme of thinking he's coming in the morning. He'll be here before dinner. And so there's nothing we can do now. Those are the extremes that get you closed out of the celebration. Because it fails to understand the call. The work that is assigned. See, wise waiting prioritizes the righteous desires that God has for his kingdom. Growth. And it anticipates Christ's return, faithfully discharging the duties of a servant. That's what wise waiting does. I know he's coming, but I'm not going to be paralyzed by that fact, nor am I going to be inactive because I think, gosh, he hasn't shown up in 2,000 years. What makes me think it'll be anytime soon? We wait wisely when we wait actively. Faithfully doing the work God has assigned to each one of us. Now here's an important question. How do we know the assignment? How do I know what I'm supposed to be doing? Jesus actually reveals the path to discovery in this story. And there are two parts to it. The first is that we have to recognize that the assignment is based upon the vision of the master. The assignment comes from our master. It's his call. Did, did you notice that when the master decided that he was going to go on a long trip, he, he didn't call his executive team of servants in and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be gone for a while, and uh, we, we need to decide how things are going to run. We need to decide what you're going to be working toward and what the expectations are. Let, let's just talk about it. Because I'm just not sure how I want things to go. They weren't asked for input. The vision wasn't up for debate. When he called them in, he had his mind made up. Everything he had was going to be entrusted to those servants so they could not guard it, but grow it. By the way, he wasn't going to micromanage their activities. He was going to give them the vision, equip them to do the work, 
and he was going away. The vision is to expand the estate. The vision came from the master. It's God's vision. It's the same. Before Jesus left, he called the disciples together for the same sort of meeting. Not hear what they thought they should do when he disappeared. But in that meeting, he was declaring his vision for the kingdom of God. And this is what he said in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. 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 And make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I'm not hanging you out to dry, but you've got to engage. The task is now and always has been to go, make disciples, teach people the wisdom of obeying God's command. That is not a debatable assignment. It's the vision. As you wait, go and make disciples. Okay, but how do I know what I'm supposed to do? I know we're supposed to go. Where am I supposed to go? Because I've got, I've got a job, and I've got a family, and I, I live right here, but there's all nations, and then I'm, I'm not a teacher, but he says we're supposed to, we're supposed to teach. What am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Do you know? Do do you know how you're supposed to use the bag of gold, the talents that have been entrusted to you? My hunch is that if all you know about the assignment is go baptize and teach, you're flailing. I'm not sure the action steps. I want you to think about what happened in that story. Do you remember there were different amounts of gold assigned? Do you remember that? One got five, one got two, another got one bag. Do you remember why? This is so important to understanding what we, what you and I are supposed to be engaged in. Look at verse 15. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two. To another, one bag, each according to his, say it, ability. Each according to his ability. Then, he left. The assignment was based upon their abilities. I wonder how many 
of us use our abilities to serve and build our kingdom and bury them when it comes to serving God's. See, the, the, the master, you know what he knew? He knew the servants. He knew what they were capable of. He knew how they would handle the trust. He knew how each of them could individually contribute the most to his vision. The expectations were the same for all of them, served the vision, but the assignment was different, and it was different based upon their abilities. And that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. The work that you are supposed to do as you wisely wait is what you were created for. The work that I am supposed to do as I wait wisely is what I was created to do. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know how he did it? God gave us spiritual gifts. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have spiritual gifts. You have a heart for something. You have abilities that were given to you when you were knit together in your mother's womb. From the first day of life. You have passions. Things that you prioritize because... They mean so much to you. And then you have experiences. That's your shape. And what God says is, I'm going to take how I've shaped you and I'm going to give you an assignment where you can serve in your sphere of influence using your passions and abilities. And you can make a difference right where you are for my kingdom. And you're not going to be held accountable for what I'm supposed to do. And I'm not going to be held accountable for what you're supposed to do. Remember, at the end, there was a reckoning for all three servants. Two of them had been faithful. And one of them was fearful. One of them decided that he didn't like the way God did business. And he wasn't going to risk getting involved in that because he was just afraid of what it might cost him. But two of them prioritized God and his vision and said, we're, we're, we're going to use our abilities for his glory, to build his estate. We would say we're going to use our abilities to see that his kingdom comes on earth just as it is in heaven. are you waiting? He's never coming back. It doesn't matter what I do. He's coming back tomorrow, so there's nothing I can do. Or are you seeing the opportunity through our master's eyes? You're taking everything that God has entrusted to you. different gifts, we have different talents, we have different 
piles of resources. We have different responsibilities. But we have the same call. It's not equal gifts. It's not equal tasks. The call is to equal sacrifice. It's death to self. we know what God's entrusted to us but we can't tell us how we're using it I can't tell by looking at you and you can't tell by looking at me but the master knows are you waiting wisely? Thankfully, he's coming back. Let's pray. God, we admit that we, we get sidetracked and distracted and, and we operate in this realm in serving you. We operate more in fear than in faith, fearfully rather than faithfully. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Lord, help us to be committed to your vision and to bring everything you've entrusted to us into play for the expansion of your kingdom. Let us be found faithful so we can hear those encouraging words, well done good and faithful servant. Lord, forgive us when we think we could play your role better than you do. And when we are indolent, lazy about your call. By your Holy Spirit, God, you guide us to begin to engage right now. Open our hearts, our minds, our calendars, our checkbooks, the reservoir of talents you've given us to you. We want to be used for your glory. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, if, if you're here in this room today or you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus, what I, what I want you to understand is that all of this is for you. Christ came, stepped out of eternity into time and lived a perfect life right here on earth and died so that you could have the opportunity to connect with your Creator. Jesus died so our sins could be forgiven and we could make a connection with God. Then, after he ascended back into heaven, he, he said, hey, I'll, I'll be back. And all the challenges, the difficulties that we experience in life, they're all going to be wiped away. But in the interim, he waits to return so you 
if you're not a follower of Jesus, will have an opportunity to trust him. Where you say, I believe that Christ loved me so much that he died for me. And you can ask God for, to forgive your sins and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and launch you on this path to purpose. Where you can live the life he created you to live. Don't wait foolishly. Wait wisely, serving meaningfully for his great cause. Lord, by your Spirit, convince our hearts and minds, convict our souls. Give us opportunities to show our faithfulness to your call so your kingdom will come on earth just as it is in heaven. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with us? We surrender all.